Oh, good morning. Hey, if you got here um, uh, past the first couple songs, you might be wondering why it's so bright in here. Uh, our light board went down this morning that kind of controls the lights, and I texted the guy who built the system, and he said, oh, there's a cool panic button on the, uh, on the deal. And so we went and hit the panic button, and what that does is that turns everything on 100%. And so that is why... Uh, and if I'd have known that, I'd have worn a hat today so that you weren't, you know, faced with the glare coming off my, the, my head. So we're in the Gospel of Mark. We're at chapter 14. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to chapter 14 in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you haven't been binging these messages, here's a brief recap. Uh, we're in the part of the Gospel where Jesus is on this, his way to the cross. He's talked about, he's prophesied about, he has gone over and over uh, talking about his upcoming torture and death. He's had his last supper with his disciples, and he has spent some considerable time wrestling with God uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, about, over what's about to happen. And in that wrestling, he has abandoned himself to anything but the will of God. And then he's been arrested by the authorities. And so today what we're talking about is his trial before the Jewish leaders. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus unequivocally uh, reveals who he believes that he is. And it's absolutely astounding. It's a great, great uh, passage. And uh, I'm super looking forward to talking about this. So Mark 14, uh, I will start reading in verse 53. Let me pray and then I'll dive in. Heavenly Father. Thank you for the way that Mark and others recorded um, what Jesus went through, the way that we can experience your Holy Spirit uh, even through this old ancient text, and the way that you speak to us about our lives today through this. And God, I just ask that you would do that today. Would you come and give every single one of us something to wrestle with, something to learn from. In Christ's name I pray, amen. <clears throat> okay, starting in verse 53, Mark 14, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. 
This is one of the most monumental moments in Mark's gospel, honestly, in all of human history. God himself is allowing himself to be put on trial by those he created. Like, this is a pretty big deal. In verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence so that they could put him to death. Those in authority wanted him dead. All four gospel accounts tell us the same thing. They wanted him dead. Why would they want him dead? Like, what's so wrong about what Jesus taught that they would want him dead? Blessed are the meek. Turn the other cheek. I could be a rapper. Don't judge others. No, no, I couldn't. Don't judge others. Seek first the kingdom of God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, sometimes when we take the teaching of Jesus and put it into some of our modern day language, doesn't it often, kind of the way it gets like presented to one another, doesn't it often come across as kind of trite statements about just being nice to everybody and loving your neighbor? And he said those things. But when we take him out of context, when we remove all the hard stuff he taught, when we remove the authority that he taught it with, sometimes it can be nothing more than just live your best life, find your true self, be happy. You know, it becomes like a song from The Lion King. Listen, nobody wanted to kill Mr. Rogers. And when we, re- when we take Jesus and just make it, and by the way, I love Mr. Rogers, but when we just take Jesus and make him like that, or like Bob Ross, then it doesn't really like, nobody wants to kill that guy. The Jewish leaders saw Jesus as a false prophet leading the nation of Israel astray. And they were particularly upset at his attack on the temple. The temple was their like seat of power. It wasn't just a place of religious worship. It was the place of Jewish governmental authority. Jesus regularly did attack the temple. They wanted to put him to death because so many people are following a person who seems to be leading Israel astray, attacking the temple, and exercising an authority that's outside of their control. And then I love the way that Jesus willingly goes alone. He's been betrayed by one disciple, abandoned by ten more, about to be publicly and bitterly renounced by his closest friend, And he stands alone and defenseless. What Jesus has come to do now, he has to do all alone. No one else can do this. Now, listen. I think it's important to say this. This is not an anti-Semitic passage. It's actually difficult to talk about this passage because of some of the disgusting anti-Semitic history of the church. In fact, this time of year, as churches teach on this passage, anti-Semitic abuse goes up in our country and around the world. As we talk about the passion story, it's absolutely horrible that followers of Jesus somehow turn that as being anti-Jewish. Racism in any form is abhorrent. Now I understand the history of anti-Semitism, and I'm also aware that historically it's undeniable that Jewish leaders were involved in the trial and the death of Christ. But it wasn't just them. Everyone in authority was involved in the death of Christ. Unjust trials, and this is a classic one, happen because people in power actually permit it to happen. And the people in power during the time of Christ were the Jews and the Romans, but we can't forget that there were two other people who allowed this to happen. The witness who was put to death himself, Jesus, allowed this to happen. 
and God the Father allowed this to happen. This was something that had been prophesied throughout history. Everyone in power, the Jews, the Romans, Jesus and God the Father were complicit in this trial. They all had different motives, but they all gave their consent to this. Anti-Semitism, racism is one of the sins that Jesus died on the cross for. And it has no place in our world. And I love the way also that Jesus does not try to escape. He has come for this purpose. He's already battled it out in the garden. And he stands before the court. These leaders think they have him, that he's on trial. But the reality is, they're on trial. Their whole system and approach to life is on trial. The temple business is on trial. Their hypocrisy is on trial. Their attempts to justify themselves racially as the chosen people and morally as good law keepers, that's what's on trial. Their political aspirations to crush the Gentiles is on trial. Their conclusions about Jesus is on trial. And so, Jesus stays silent. He stays silent before his enemies, before the false witnesses. They're looking for corroborating evidence to convict and execute Jesus, and they can't find any. Listen, for those of you, anybody into like true crime stuff? My wife Brenda loves that stuff. This is just this part here is just for you. Capital cases, uh, in capital cases, uh, condemnation required unanimous evidence of at least two witnesses. I have the references. You could look it up later if you want. It's a provision that's firmly rooted in the laws of the Pentateuch. In, in, in Jewish ju- judicial procedure, the witnesses actually functioned as the prosecution. They gave their uh, evidence individually and verbally in the presence of the judges and the accused. And if they differed from one another, even in the most trivial details, all their testimony was thrown out. So a number of witnesses were called and heard, but all that's recorded is that they failed to agree with one another. All of their testimony was invalidated because they failed to agree with one another. Okay, that was it for the true crime folks. They needed to get all of this done before dawn of the next day, Remember, so it started with Jesus' last supper at sundown, and then he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he's arrested in the night. All night long, they're doing this trial. They want to get this trial done before dawn because the next day, the next sundown, Sabbath begins, and that's the Passover. And they've got to get him on the cross and get him dead before that begins. That was their goal. If they're going to be able to execute Jesus, it's got to happen soon. So why is he staying silent? Well, number one, they can't convict him if he, talk, if he doesn't talk. Like, if he doesn't say anything, he's going to go free. Their witnesses are falling apart. I think Jesus is refusing to engage two things. He refuses to engage it in them, and we suffer from these things as well. So first of all, he refuses to engage their close-mindedness. Jesus' life witnessed to the truth that he had been speaking all along. The miracles that he did pointed to the reality that he was the Messiah, the Christ. The Old Testament prophecies that he walked through pointed to the reality that he was the Messiah. All the Jewish holidays, the Gospel of John is so brilliant in unpacking how all the Jewish holidays pointed to the reality of who he was. John the Baptist, at the very beginning, 
says, remember, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of Jesus' words point to this reality. The Father spoke from heaven at his baptism. This is my Son. This is the one that I love. When you see the entire story of Jesus as Mark lays it out, there's one conclusion. There's only one. Jesus is the Messiah sent from God. Listen, people don't reject Jesus because they've thoroughly considered the evidence and then turned away from it. People don't reject Jesus because they consider it ever. It's, it's not as if we actually investigate the claims of Christ, weigh the evidence, listen to the testimony, and then our own intellectual honesty demands that we reject the idea of Jesus as the heaven-sent Messiah. Not at all. We reject Jesus because we've already made up our minds of how we want to live and how we want to do stuff without considering the evidence. Our prior commitments are what cause us to reject his claims. One of the bridges that you have to cross if you want to actually put your faith in Christ is this bridge of recognizing I might be wrong in some of what I think. And if you're unwilling to cross that bridge, you never actually consider the claims of Jesus. Right? You have to be willing to admit that maybe even for a number of years I've been wrong about something as important as God in my relationship with him. And it's really hard to admit that when it confronts a position that you've hold, held on to staunchly. The high priest couldn't do that. Jesus challenged everything, the true nature of Judaism, the, the, the place that the temple held in their lives, the proper way to lead. I know, I know for me, one of the issues I've had to face that all of us face, perhaps, is maybe the whole way I've thought about life could be wrong. I'll never forget reading through the Gospel of John the very first time as a 17-year-old thinking, oh my word, if this is true, if this is even a portion of this is true, everything I thought I knew about life is backwards. It's upside down. Like if this is right side up, then everything I thought I knew is upside down about the way to get ahead, about what life means, about where happiness comes from. I completely sympathize with that struggle. Like, that's the way that we all come to that. And by the way, it's not just true for those who are exploring or considering Christianity. It's also a lesson for every single follower of Christ. The truth is, friends, that some of the most narrow-minded, close-minded people in the world are people who come to faith in Christ and then all of a sudden think they know everything about everything. Those are some of the hardest people to talk to about what's really going on in the world. Do you know that one of the key ways that your faith is going to grow is when you move past an absolute certainty about everything to a place of holding on to the essentials and being very willing to revise your thinking about other issues. I've had to do this over and over and over as a believer. One, one of the things I was uh, educated uh, at the beginning uh, in, in a very um, uh, conservative uh, Baptist school uh, so conservative uh, that uh, like your hair couldn't touch your ears and touch your collar on your shirt. And I let it grow out really long. Little did I know, eventually it would never touch the collar in my shirt again. And, <laughs> right? And uh, it's it incredibly conservative. And I remember being taught and writing actually thesis papers on why the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. 
And then coming years later, 10, 15 years later, to a vineyard church and listening to uh, guys like John Wimber on, on video or some of the pastors that, uh, and leaders that I was working with and watching them actually pray for people and seeing folks who were demonized get delivered and seeing actual real physical healing take place like on the spot. I remember watching that for the first time and thinking, everything I thought I knew about that is wrong. Now, I could just throw that out and go, well, I know everything perfectly and I'm not going to listen to that. Or I could say, well, I need to investigate that. Maybe what I've believed about Jesus, about who he is, is absolutely right. And maybe what I've thought about some of the other issues is wrong. Listen, as a follower of Christ, if you want to grow, you have to be willing to do that. Some of us have done it over and over again. So much of our tribalism and our infighting in the church, even that we've seen during COVID, has come from an unwillingness to do that very thing. He refuses to engage their closed-mindedness, and he refuses to engage their religious hypocrisy. Here the leaders are concerned with how Jesus isn't meeting the demands of the law as they see it, observing the Sabbath properly, for example. Yet they're involved in this incredible travesty of justice, a kangaroo court convicting Jesus. It's, It's like the person in church, the man in church, who constantly demands conformity from his wife and his children to the tiniest little things in the Bible, yet his cruelty to them is overwhelming, or his hiding of a secret addiction really carefully. In his silence, Jesus is just not engaging him. There's a, there's a wonderful story in a book called Of Whom the World Was Not Worthy. It's published in 1978, back, back when books had cool covers, by a gal named Marie Shapin, and uh, she went to Yugoslavia during the Nazi conquest and occupation, and she interviewed peasants, gypsies, factory workers, doctors, laborers, officials of the Communist Party. She wanted to know something about the Christian's faith that was sustained during those terrible years of war and famine and cold, and what she learned is that they clung to God with incredible faith. I went back and was kind of re-looking at this, just based on what's going on in Ukraine today. And there's a story in which an evangelist that she tells, named Yakov, was witnessing to an older man by the name of Zimmerman, who knew a great deal about the church, Zimmerman did, and about politics, and who despised the hypocrisy that he'd seen in the church. I love this story. Yakov began talking with Simmerman about the love of Christ. Simmerman replied, don't talk to me about Christ. I see those priests over there in all those robes and cloaks and their big crosses on their chests. I know what they are like. They are violent people. Some of them have stirred the crowds to kill my own family. Don't talk with me about the love of Christ. I know what Christians are like. Yakov said, may I ask you a question? What if I stole your coat and boots and put them on and broke into a store and robbed it? What if I was chased by the police, but I outran them? Nice pair of boots, I'd say. What if the police came knocking on your door and charged you with breaking into a store? Zimmerman said, well, I would deny the charges. I didn't break into the store. But what if the police said, we know you did because we recognized your coats and boots from a distance. You, You just have to have broken into that store. Zimmerman says, Yakov, leave me alone. I know where you're driving. I don't want to go there. Over the next number of months, Yakov had the opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ to Zimmerman, not just talk about it. Finally, one day, Zimmerman said, Yakov, tell me about this Christ. How can I know him? 
Yaakov explained what it meant to put your faith in Christ and trust him as the bearer of your sin. Zimmerman knelt down on the ground and received Christ into his life. And he stood up and he said, Yaakov, you wear the coat and boots of Jesus very well. What would it be like to have that said about you? You wear the coat and boots of Jesus very well. I'd like that said about me. Right? The religious hypocrisy. Jesus actually is silent, refused to confront it. And then, under Jewish law, the accused had a very strong privilege against self-incrimination. In other words, it was completely Ill, it was completely legal for Jesus to refuse to answer, and it was completely illegal for the high priest to question the accused. It was up to the court to kind of proffer the witnesses for the alleged crime. And if the court couldn't prove it, the accused is off. They're free to go. Now finally Jesus speaks up. Think about this. The trial has fallen apart. I could picture Jesus, if, like if I just embodied that for a second, I picture Jesus just going, oh my gosh, you guys can't even do this right. I've got to convict myself here. I mean, you can't even do this part right, right? I can picture that. It's evident from Mark's gospel that Jesus had carefully avoided calling himself the Messiah. Mark 8, what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. We see the tension between keeping his identity veiled and then the open manifestation, which is characteristic of his public ministry. Jesus was careful not to engage their nationalistic or political hopes, which kind of surrendered the Messiah to just being, like, you know, in the popular thinking, somebody who's going to throw off the Roman Empire. So Jesus finally speaks up. He incriminates himself. And when he does it, he draws together two key biblical quotations. He says, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One, coming in the clouds of heaven. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make you an enemy, make your enemies a footstool for, my, uh, for your feet. Jesus is saying that I am the one spoken of in Psalm 110. And then he draws in Daniel 7. In my vision at night, uh, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven as he approached the Ancient of Days, and I was led into his presence. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that David wrote about in the Psalms. I'm the one that Daniel talked about. In fact, his first answer, I am, echoes back to Exodus when Moses says, what's your name? Jesus is saying, that's me. He's saying that the day will come when those who now judge him will see him with unmistakable clarity, enthroned at God's side, invested with power and majesty, and assigned the task of being the judge at the end of the age. He's not simply claiming to be divine. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm a true prophet. Yes, what I've said about the temple will come true. Yes, I am the Messiah. And yes, my vindication will mean that I share the very throne of Israel's God. He says, yes, he's the Christ, God's anointed one. At the Messiah, that means he's going to the core of what it means to be God in this world, liberating the captives, bringing fallen creation back to God's original intention. All the messianic promises to David are fulfilled in Jesus. He eternally reigns on David's throne and his rule is forever. 
When he says yes to being the blessed one, meaning God, Jesus sees beyond the high priest's question to the real answer. He's not simply the Messiah. He's God in human form. And when he says he's the son of man, he's saying that I'm the one that will go to heaven and reign at the right hand of God. I'll be in the position authority over the whole universe administering the kingdom. He's the object of our praise and worship and devotion. He holds all things in his hands is what he's saying. In his name, prayers are answered, John 16. In his name, we heal the sick and drive out demons, Matthew 10. His name is above every name in heaven and on earth, Philippians chapter 2. And the one who reigns is the one who is coming, and he has gone into the clouds of heaven, and he will come back from the clouds of heaven, Acts chapter 1. All the masks are off. All the parables are finished. The Son of Man stands before Israel's ruler declaring that God will prove him right and Israel's court will be proven wrong. The one they couldn't convict, the creator of all, allows himself to be convicted so that he could become the Passover lamb that next day who takes away the sins of the world. Whew! I love that. Now everyone gets to choose how to respond. He's immediately mocked and abused. Some spit on him. It's a sign of their venom. It's a sign that they want him separated from Israel. He's now unclean. Others blindfold him and strike him, challenging him to prophesy who did it. Tell me who hit you if you're a prophet. The guards join in. They're beating him. The trial ends with them physically attacking, terrorizing Jesus. And that's exactly what he said would happen. Mark 8, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Mark 10, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. None of this is on accident. At the moment of his confession, the whole Sanhedrin should have fallen at his feet and confessed their hard hearts and repented and confessed, you are Lord, but they didn't. Instead, they condemned him as worthy of death. They abused him. They mocked him. In our hearts, we all do one or the other. We either fall before him as Lord God. We either submit to him for who he is or we reject him for who he is. There's no fence to sit on because there's no fence. Jesus didn't leave us a fence. What he says is either true or false. He's either right or wrong. He's either a demented maniac or he is the Christ, the Son of God, the exalted Son of Man. You can't have it both ways. You can't patronize him. He's not one savior among others. He can't be your savior and not be the savior of the whole world. There's no middle ground. There's no escape from his ultimate claim and our ultimate response. Either we fall at his feet as king and enter his kingdom or we rail against him. Either we salute him as Lord or we condemn him to death. Either we embrace him or we spit on him. Either we sit at his feet or we strike him and beat him. The real judgment he takes isn't his, it's ours as he takes away our sin to redeem us from God's wrath. He must endure the rejection that's poured out by the high priest in the Sanhedrin because he's our substitute. 
The Christian life begins when you make a clear personal decision to ask Jesus to be your substitute to stand in your place, to exchange your sin for his righteousness, to exchange your disobedience for his obedience, your brokenness for his wholeness, your addictions for his freedom. If you've never asked Jesus to be your substitute, that's where I want to start right now. I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to like, throw your lot in with Christ. There's probably a few of us here in this room, or maybe watching online, I don't know, who've been sitting on the fence. Who've been saying, you know, I want the good stuff, but I don't want the hard stuff. And what I hope you can hear is that the good stuff really is good and it all comes together in one package. There's no way to parse it out. When you do what Thomas Jefferson did, when you take the Bible and make it bespoke, when you cut out all the parts you don't like, you actually just end up with a book that nobody would kill Jesus for. And so I think it's incredibly important And for those of you that are following Jesus for a long time, I have a challenge for you in just a second. I want to be an equal opportunity challenger. But for those that maybe haven't been, I want to invite you to throw your lot in with Christ. I'm going to lead us in a very simple prayer of surrender where we say, Jesus, I don't even understand all this, but if this is true, like I want in on it. The kind of life he offers us is an amazingly beautiful life. And I just want to invite you to go that direction. I have found it, after 45 years of following Jesus, to be the best freaking life there could possibly be. And so, if you want to, here's a simple prayer of surrender. Just pray it along with me quietly. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I want to welcome your presence your life into my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for the way that you indicted yourself in this trial. Thank you for your self-sacrificial love that opens the door for me to experience the love of my heavenly father. And as much as I'm able to, I put my faith in you. I put my confidence in you. I want to try this life you're offering to me. I surrender. Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And would you do that work that only you can do of changing me from the inside out, making me into the kind of person you originally created me to be. Might I find life and joy in you? The life and joy I've been looking for and honestly unable to locate. I welcome you into every single bit of my life. In Christ's name I pray.
Amen. You know, if you prayed that with me for the first time, there's actually some little packets on the tables on the way out the door. There's just a New Testament Bible and a couple things about how to grow as a Christian. I'd love to have you take one of those with you. And or in a minute we have ministry time, you can come up and get some prayer for some folks up here. For those that have been followers of Jesus for a long time, I told you this was coming. Our closed-mindedness and our religious hypocrisy actually stop us from growing as followers of Christ. The moment that you think you have all the answers about everything, you're actually closing yourself off from growing as a follower of Jesus every single day. I actually think there's there's things, as I read through the Bible, I've been reading through the Bible um, pretty much every year for 45 years, just reading through it over and over again every year. And every single week, I run across something where God goes, Michael, I want to challenge the way you think about this. I want to challenge the way you act in this area of your life. And honestly, I have a love-hate relationship with those moments. I love those moments because I know God wants to make me into a better man. I don't like those moments because they're hard. And he's challenging something. And often I have to go back and apologize somewhere. Do you know the feeling? If you interact with the scripture much, you know the feeling. And if you don't know the feeling, that's what I'm talking about. You can't continue to grow as a follower of Christ unless you're willing to reinvestigate some of the things that you hold on to so tightly that are no longer the essentials. They're not the essential thing of who Christ is and what he came to do. And so I'm going to invite us to stand and I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to begin to like move amongst us and highlight some things that he wants to challenge us in. So why don't you guys stand up? Normally we would dim the lights, but I think if we hit the panic button again, everything just goes black. So, and then that would be panic. So, Holy Spirit, sometimes our blind spots actually keep us from seeing the things in our lives that you want to address. Sometimes our long-held, staunchly-held beliefs about certain kinds of things Man, I could list off so many. I think, Holy Spirit, you're better at that than me. And so, God, would you just list off in our minds one or two things for us? It'd be overwhelming, God, if you listed them all for us. But would you list off a couple things for each of us that you actually want to challenge in some of our staunchly held beliefs about this world and the way it works, about one another, about other people. Would you challenge some of those things so that we can continue to grow in you and follow your lead? Holy Spirit, would you come right now? Lord, we don't want to live our mind closed-mindedly. We don't want to, I mean, live our lives closed-mindedly. We don't, we don't, We want to wear the coat and the boots of Jesus very well. And God, so often we're not sure how we don't do that. So I ask that you would give us the courage to hear your voice right now. The courage to dive into this. The courage to welcome you in these moments. Let's come, Holy Spirit. My friend, the ministry team, could you begin to make your way up here? Holy Spirit, would you come? 
If you're on the worship team, you can make your way up here too. Uh, we want to take some time to pray for you and just really the stuff that God is dialing up. And, and, and my prayer for you is that he give you courage to respond. And if you're at that spot where you're like, I'm not even sure what some of those things are that I might be holding on to that are keeping me from wearing the boots and coat of Jesus well, if you're not sure what they are, come up for prayer. If you're sure what they are, come up for prayer. There, I got us all. If you're a human and you have a pulse, come up for prayer. Because I think God actually wants to do some work in us today. To help us on that path of being more like him. More like who Jesus was. Being able to live the kind of life he lived, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so Lord, would you give us the courage to respond? We really do want to welcome you into every single part of our life. We don't want to just do this alone. And we don't want to fall in the trap that Israel fell into with you. We want to recognize you when you show up in our lives. So Holy Spirit, give us the courage to respond. Would you come and meet us right here during this time? All right, come up and get some prayer. God bless you guys. I, my, oh, I forgot communion. <laughs> That's why you weren't coming up here. You're waiting for communion. Oh, sweet. If you have those elements, pull them out. If you're at ministry team and you need an element, there's Brian right there. Like, I went to collect my stuff and I'm like, oh, there's communion stuff here. You guys are all so patient and waiting and you're so gracious. You're not like, hey, Gatlin, you fool, you forgot something. <laughs> communion is this incredibly cool picture of Jesus' death that next day and our trust for that. And he said, every time that you get together, do this in remembrance of me. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had broken it, he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus and the way that you invite us into life that is really life. Let's take and eat together. the same way after supper during supper he took the cup could have been the cup of suffering it could have been the cup of celebration he took one of those cups and and he just said uh, this cup represents the new covenant paid for by my blood poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins and whenever you get together you drink this cup and in his name. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the new covenant that allows us to be full of the Holy Spirit, full of your grace and peace in our lives. And we just say thank you for that. Let's drink a cup together. God, we're so thankful that we can be the body of Christ that worships you 
We can be the body together. We can be the body of Christ that prays for one another. We can be the body of Christ that brings healing in our community, in our city. Lord, would you more fully equip us for that? And for those areas that are blind spots to us, those areas where we're close-minded, where we're actually practicing religious hypocrisy that we can't even see, would you give us the courage to respond and give prayer right now? In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, come on, on, come on up and get some prayer. Other than that, God bless you and have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you.